Hello. Can you hear us, Ari? I can hear you. Can you hear me? I can. Okay. So we got our audio. We'll have to just do this. Um, okay. Okay. Overcame uh, difficulty one. Let me get my cameras right here. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry for taking a second, man. Good to see you again. Oh, good. It's good to see you too. Hey, Josh. Hey, Ari. How are you? I'm fantastic. Yes, I'm tired, but I'm fantastic. I guess you can't technically see me, but I'm gonna I'm gonna fix that real quick. There we go. Okay. And I like the new studio. Nice. Thanks, man. Yeah, I got Pupper Man back here, as you saw. Yeah. yeah. Um, and let me. Uh, I'm in a mirror real quick so i can throw you up on the tv ari that way we can uh because josh can't see you until i do that so you you're like all joe roving out this is crazy I, man i'm i've had a couple of small dif uh, difficulties as you see but um it, it is coming together and i i'm about to be i'm playing with doing two and three camera live streams so oh nice okay I'm just not there yet. I thought I would be able to do this one today live, but um, I'm close. I ordered a couple more things that will allow me to to do every to basically what you said to do in a way uh, my own way, like Joe Rogan does at Multicam live stream. Yeah. Actually, he doesn't do live anymore at all. So yeah, okay. It's all in the edit. <laughs> all right, I think we're good now. You can see our uh, you can see me up there. You know, they're drinking this cup of coffee or water. Okay. Knocking it out. Let's get uh, change. Okay, cool. You can still hear us? Yep. All right, perfect. You're coming through the speakers now. Can you hear us? We're good? All good. Perfect. All right, cool. All right, man. So sorry for the technical difficulties. Thanks for uh, being patient. It's, it's good to see you again. That's good uh, to see you. And again, for people that don't know, um, like, you know, I do like, man, I bring, I bring you up in the gym periodically. I was telling somebody the other day, I was like, this was the first guy that was, that was on YouTube as far as I, in my universe, it was doing jujitsu, you know, but I wanted to, to have you on uh, today. I mean, we can obviously are going to talk about jujitsu, but we hit on this with your last appearance about like, and you you have such a passionate uh, approach to trying to get jujitsu integrated into law enforcement training. You are a police officer, you are a jujitsu black belt. And I thought we could talk a lot about Invictus today where it's like, we just hit on that last time. Josh, you know, runs uh, a program here at the gym, Project Warrior for first responders and law enforcement. He's a, a chief of one of the biggest institutions uh in the state we're in so i figured we could all get together and and you know raise raise some awareness about this too so that yeah. was kind of my thought uh yeah i'd love to talk about it i mean it's uh it's been quite the journey as i mean we touched upon it before ryan but uh i i'm just amazed on on where it's going and uh, i love it, it's so crazy seeing chiefs of police doing jujitsu it's like it's amazing 
because you don't see it often, right? So I, I just, I love it. You gotta, you gotta forget my dog in the background, by the way. Just give me one second. I love puppies. I wanna, I need to do active speech with you. Sorry about that. Okay. You're all good. Yeah, so, I mean, tell us, uh, Ari, when did you get going, uh, I mean, with Invictus? I know we talked about this a little bit on your last appearance, but kind of recap, like, at what point into your training did you decide, did you become an officer? Like, what was the trajectory on you becoming as passionate as you are about this? Uh, oh, so which one? When becoming a cop or doing the Invictus thing? Well, I mean, how did, I guess, how did one lead to the other? Like, I mean, I, you know, obviously you, you were in law enforcement and then you, did you get passionate about jujitsu being in law enforcement after that? Like what was the order of operations there? Uh, no, uh, so jujitsu came before uh, for me. And uh, I mean, I've been doing the martial arts for 35 years and it, I, I was lucky because a lot of cops, you hear them talk about, um, doing jujitsu and how difficult it is because of shift work. It's like, well, you know, you guys are black belts because you guys did martial arts before going to policing. And now I'm a cop, but I, I can't do it because of shift work. And as my buddy, Chad Lyman always says, you got to do a little, a lot, and then eventually you get there. Um, but I mean, I've been a cop for seven years. I started, a I started late in life. Uh, I started at 39 slash 40 and, uh, and I was already uh, a brown belt at the time. Uh, and I was just on the cusp of getting my black belt. So I've been, I've been pretty lucky. Uh, and I continue to do it, but before I was a cop, I mean, I was training five days a week when I came a cop, then it was like, okay, I've got to figure out my, my training. Cause it isn't practical. I can't train five days a week. Like I used to for multiple hours a day. So I was like, going to do a little, a lot, going to do it. You know, here's my schedule. I'm going to do it two times a week, or I'm going to do it three times a week. And then, uh, I just kind of carried on from there. So. Yeah, I mean, so what were your thoughts like when you went through police academy and stuff? Like when you started, I mean, were you able to integrate the jiu-jitsu that you were currently doing on the job or there restraints there? What what was the department like that you were at? Because I know a lot of this varies from department to department too. I mean, things uh, in who you have on the in the department that's kind of leading the crusade. Uh, but what was uh, what was use of force and everything like uh, at that time that you were getting that you were becoming a cop? So police academies are much like jujitsu academies. They vary where you go and what the instruction is like and what they're teaching. Um, most of the police academies, I would say, in North America are teaching antiquated uh, technique, old stuff like we're going to knee in the femoral artery, or give me your hands, and so it's a lot of it's a lot of bash jitsu. And it doesn't work and there's, there's better ways to do it. So I think I mentioned this before, but as the old guard retires, the new guard is coming in that have more training and are doing better. So my experience at the police academy was that type of thing. It's like, hey, uh, this is how you do a weapon retention when you're on the ground. And they were so, showing stuff that, I, that was dangerous and it didn't work. Um, you know, like basic Kimura control. As, as the three of us know, super simple. You know, someone's trying to grab onto your weapon and just getting good control. Yeah, I mean, but it, it was like, I remember showing it in class and everyone on the mat was just like, well, this works way better than what they're showing us. And I'm like, mm -hmm. yeah, I know, <laughs> you know, so it, it's, it's crazy. So my experience at Police Academy, the use of force was 
it's like a grade one level. And it should be at least starting out at a grade 12 level. And it's really not that hard. I mean, grade 12 level is just, here are the basic concepts. This is going to be efficient. So uh, slowly we're seeing that. And we're slowly we're seeing more jujitsu uh, black belts, brown belts, and purple belts uh, who are in policing uh, teaching as well. So it's good. So it, uh, how long were, had you been doing... I mean, how long had you been a police officer when you decided to like get passionate about starting this organization Invictus that that you're using? I mean, you I, I've just seen a lot of stuff you put out. Like that, I was just kind of became aware of it when we did a podcast was sometime last year, right? It's probably been close to a year now, but you know, that's when I became aware of like I'd seen I'd seen you and Keith post a little bit in the past, you know. And I know he used to be law enforcement. So like I was a little aware, but I didn't know, and I'd heard of Invictus, but I didn't know that was really you were the you know, one of the guys behind it. But like, how did all that come into being? So my buddy Jason Repsch and I uh, started Invictus in February of 2019. Uh, initially, it was a hashtag movement; it didn't even have a name, so it was just uh, BJJ Make It Mandatory, and so that's our hashtag that we use for everything. And I'm like, well, we can't call our movement BJJ Make It Mandatory. It's just, it's a mouthful. It didn't, it didn't roll off the tongue. So uh, I've basically used the name Invictus, which was, it means unconquerable. And uh, I think it's just a, it's a great word to use. And it, it went from there. So we have our Instagram page and then we started getting more and more followers in our Facebook page. And then we started our website. And in the last, I think since you and I last talk, talked, it's, it's actually really exploded. And there's new, there's kind of new programs coming onto the scene. There's something called Adopt a Cop, which you probably have heard of, maybe you haven't, uh, that that is basically sponsoring police officers now if they can't afford it. Um, and it's pretty cool. So again, the thing with us is we're not like this single group that is trying to smash out everyone else. We are willing, if you're, if you're a group, a police group that does jujitsu or has anything to do with police and jujitsu, we're willing to push your policing agenda, your group will promote it. Uh, again, we're a collective, we're not a business. So that's the difference. Hop in here anytime you want, Josh. Uh, so <laughs> good. Um, yeah, you know, like that's uh, when I know jo like Josh and I were talking about this and, you know, having our own community, but it is um, like we, we're wanting to network more with communities th that are doing things like what you're doing. They, I, you know, I know he's, um, talked in the past about adopt a cop and, and other organizations. I had um, sometime after you were on the podcast, I had Alan Shabaro on. Uh, we Defy, right? So there, there's some great organizations out there for not just law enforcement, for vet veterans, for you know first responders, and um, but you know particularly like just the passion too for me has always been there just like working with some departments and some some officers in the past or training several people that are that were law enforcement are law enforcement over the years you definitely see that they could benefit from having some jujitsu in their life right yeah and i love seeing when gyms when gyms do that i mean like when guys like you are, are teaching cops it's amazing and I always ask, like, do you have do you have police officers at your gym? And the answer is yes or no. And then if it's yes, why are they there? How did you get them there? Are you promoting it or did they just show up? So 
and it's an important question to ask, not only of police officers, but just of your students. Do you know who, do you personally know who your demographic is? So I'm, I'm actually posing that to you right now, Ryan. Do you know who your demographic is? Who do you cater to? Overall, like yeah. everybody in the gym? Yeah, like who, 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 as a business model, I think you have to have that. So who yeah, is- for sure, for sure. So I would say, um, just generally speaking, I would, if I could put it in one word, I would say families. Okay. Right. But uh, I mean, we really have a, we have over 300 members here. It's a super diverse, like there are so many communities within the community, but you know, for our, for our class, like that Josh runs, uh, it is, it's kind of a conglomerate of, you know, current and former military personnel, law enforcement, first responders, firefighters, like anybody that's, uh, I would say a civil servant type. Yeah. Like Stefan Kesting, he's a firefighter. You're you're law yeah. enforcement, but anybody who's a civil servant type, like we allow to come and and uh, do these classes that we offer, right? So it's like its own community. But like overall, our largest demographics families. Um, mm -hmm. Like we have a lot of parents that train. Like Josh has kids that train, etc. So. But that's, um, you know, as a business, like that's, that's our demographic. Mostly we're in a college town, but 18 to 25 year olds are not the most consistent human beings when it comes to yeah. long-term long stuff like jujitsu. But when you started out, I mean, for me, when I started my school, my vision had was different than it was near the end, you know? So when I started, I was like, I want to have 18 to 25 year olds who want to be world champions, who want to win medals. fighters. Of course, right? And that was the thing because it's your ego is invested. And then as you get older, I'm 47 now. So I'm just like, what am I thinking? Like, I want to cater to regular people. I want to make regular people tough people. I don't want tough people coming in because they're already tough. And so the quote I always use is, you may not be uh, tough when you start jujitsu, but I assure you that by the end of it, you will be. And it does, it makes you really resilient. So that's who I wanted. And that's kind of where I shaped it. And the next thing is, you look at your gym and you go, are you trying to make world champions? Do you want your entire gym to be competition people? Or are you, is it families? Is it regular people? Is it self-defense? So that's why the demographic I think is, uh, is super important. Yeah, for real. So just kind of, just kind of pick your brain area. If this is cool with you is, uh, so you say you're a collective for the Evictus thing. I just want to ask a question. So do y'all have any in your collective Are y'all, the BJJ make it mandatory without support 100%. I just throw that out there. What's your um, what What's your thoughts on you know how do you integrate BJJ across the spectrum, like from your academy days all the way up to how do you make it mandatory and how do you keep it flowing through their patrol, through the different areas they go to, like detectives or specialized units, and how do you how do you how do you see that or is there something out there that you have i know i saw the marietta georgia thing where you interviewed the police chief over there and i saw the where they make it mandatory at other departments to do that and then we talked to several people around that have it at their department is there mm -hmm. something that um that you would recommend or do you have a, a vision for that so to speak well that's the that's the sixty four thousand dollar question right there it's like how do you make it mandatory and how do you get people involved i mean that's an awesome question and it's a huge question it's like it's like me saying what is martial arts it's like uh where do i even start <laughs> so um you can harp all you want to your fellow officers and say you must do jujitsu you should do jujitsu it's going to save your life but most of them won't believe it because of a variety of excuses and the three of us know 
there are a lot of excuses in the martial arts. Couple that with when you're doing police work, it's even more difficult because of shift work, because of family, because of all these things. Uh, again, something I've said in all the podcasts that I ever do is confirmation bias for police officers is huge, which basically is um, nothing bad has ever happened to me in the past. So nothing bad will happen in the future. So, you know, my, my force presence, my taser, uh, I've been good. So why would I expend energy in learning something that I may or may not use? So I just say, well, why do we train firearms? I mean, most police officers never get into an officer involved shooting. Why are we training that for that one day? You know, you don't choose the day, the day chooses you. So you have to have that in your mind. And the benefits outside of you know, the jujitsu, we know that PTSD is a real thing for a lot of different people, stress, mental illness, all these things. And jujitsu obviously helps that. It's a healthy lifestyle as well. You need to have all these things. Um, police, policing is a physical job. And what do we do when we arrest people? We physically go hands-on to control another person who doesn't want to be controlled. I have yet to see, I'm sure it's out there, a police officer uh, high kick people in the head to take them into custody. <laughs> so, what about Walker, Texas Ranger, man? I've been rewatching the original. Different, different. Like he's, he, he's allowed to do that, but uh, everyone else, you can't do it, right? So um, Josh, we know that the optics of uh, punching and striking and stuff like that, although sometimes effective, is not the best way of doing things. And we need efficiency. So patrol members, I think, need it the most because we're, we're on the street the most. Do detectives need it? Yeah, sure they do because they may come back to the street, but it's going to help them in those different areas, which I talked about. So it is a slow process. And this goes for everyone in jiu-jitsu. The hardest thing in jiu-jitsu is walking through the door of an academy. Mm-hmm. That is for the sure. first because the barriers are immense and the excuses are immense. So I'm sure I can make a meme with all these names over a door, like, you know, you don't need it or couch time or TV program or food or soccer or whatever. And, and they're all their barriers. So you have to get right with the world. And I can talk about jujitsu until I'm blue in the face, but the internal motivation is what someone needs. When I talk to every cop that does jujitsu, there's a little fire inside of them that says, yeah, it, it was time. And then when you talk to them afterwards, it's like, why didn't I start this 10 years ago? So. Yeah. But also I think, you know, we were talking about, you know, how do you get jujitsu into policing, you know, cause we've, we've done it at our department where we've offered money. Right. So, Hey, if you come and you train, we have this time set aside two times cause we work 12 hour shifts. So on Thursday and Friday show up for two hours and you can get paid to come to work. Right. Yeah. You have little, 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 little to no response. Like our DT instructors will show up. But then you have a, nobody else shows up. You know, I personally think that if you're going to push forward forward the things, just from an administrative standpoint, from the chief's point of view, um, I see it as something that you have to integrate into your department. But I think you also need to do something a little bit better on the front end as well. Um, how long is y'all's police academy up there? Don't mind me asking. Uh, our police academy, it's changed because COVID has changed it, which is really weird. But um, so it's three months initially at the academy. And then you're typically three to five months on the road as a training with a FTO. And then you go back to the Academy for another two months. And then you obviously come back to the road and then uh, that's when you're, you're, you're full time. So that's, that's our process. What's it like for you? So ours is less. So basically our Academy is only like 14 weeks. 
And then if you go to a department, you may or may not get an FBO program, depending on where you go in the state, right? Wow. So our officers, yeah. So it's, there, there's really not a state standard for that. And I think that's, when I talk to other chiefs from around the state and around the country, I, I kind of hear the same thing. And a lot of it boils down to like, how big is your department? What have you been involved in? You know, because most chief of police are looking at risk management, right? Like how do we, how do we manage risk at our department? So we put a policy in place. This is what you're supposed to do. You act outside that policy. We're not liable for what you do, right? That's what a lot of that kind of comes forward, but our academy is pretty short. And so we're looking at doing a program here to kind of push it out as, you know, we think that, uh, or I think, I'll say that, I think that if we could produce a better academy, because I think it's, I think it's, it's threefold, right? I think number one on the front end, we need to integrate it into a more, uh, a more robust program. And so at our, the university, we're working on a, a two-year degree program where you'll spend four semesters an ROTC type program where you do PT in the morning for an hour for college credit. And then you do a class for three hour credit each semester that's law enforcement related. And mm -hmm. then you do a three hour lab each week that's procedural. So that a little, a lot idea that you're talking about. So yeah. you do that for two years and then you go to the academy. And so the academy becomes a place where you're not going to learn how to be a cop. You're kind of going there to hone your skills. And at the end of the day, we're, we're trying to, we're trying to produce a, a better officer on the front end so that when they get out of the academy, they've got a two-year associate's degree. So they've also got the ability to do some other stuff, but they've also been trained um, in leadership techniques as well as like communication, government, all the stuff you need for like a basic education. Then throw in your 15-week academy. Plus they've also got two years of uh, three-hour classes they take every for 15 weeks straight. And then you've got your week or offer a few week intensive classes as well. So like an active shooter, 40-hour class. Mm -hmm. driving all that good stuff to kind of get a better product on the front end so by the time you go to the go to a department all they really got to do is training on what's our procedures this department to be successful right what do you expect of me as a cop and how does that look and then jujitsu being a part of that you know that's one of the things that, that i'm really looking at is like so after two and a half years how do i get it to where i can hand that officer a blue belt like hey thanks for being here for two and a half years you've done great you've done all the dt stuff you've done the jujitsu stuff Here's a blue belt and a certificate of completion along with your associate's degree, right? To produce a better officer. And then I think, you know, but once they get past that, you know, we could do a great job on the front end, but when they get to the department, you know, all the excuses, right? Like, I don't have time, I can't do it. You know, if for departments to integrate that into their department, you almost need like that extra shift to where the military, I think, does a good job. They basically train you up, send you overseas, then you rotate back to the state, get a couple of training. So, yeah. I think that if you funded police departments more personally and you had it where you had an extra shift. So every, every fourth week or every, every uh, fifth week, I rotate to a 40 hour training block. So every month or two months, I'm getting 40 hours of training that includes all your hands-on practicals, all your stuff, but then it's required because, you know, I, I read, I read your papers about the excuses why people don't do it. And I yep. read the stuff you've produced and I see that hundred percent. And I think one of the best ways for us is, police chiefs or administrators of departments is we need to find a way to integrate that into like the lifestyle, the culture or how we do business. Right. So if I know I'm going to work the street for four weeks, then every fifth week I rotate to a 40 hour training, right. That extra shift idea. And then the problem with that, it takes a lot of money. Right. Yeah. So. And, and the other thing is that, so Jake was saying at Marietta that it starts at the Academy level. So Josh, you're right. Like we, you have to get them early. Um, yeah. trying to work on a 15 or 20 year veteran and tell them they need to change is, is pretty difficult. You know, you, you have to be pretty self-aware 
And I'm not saying that it doesn't happen because it does, but if you get them at the academy, that's where it is at. And the other thing you pointed out, we are doing a disservice to the members of policing if they are not getting proper training. And I mean that from everything, from legal standpoint, uh, conflict resolution. And that's why you see so much shit. These cops are coming in and, uh, you know, you can't, you can't blame a 22 year old cop coming in who's got only, you know, a couple months of training on the road by themselves. And then they're in a use of force incident and it's gone horribly wrong because they don't know. And their training is, is not very good. They can't articulate why they did what they did. And then you're in a shitstorm as a police chief in a department. So. Yeah. And also I'd, I'd add to that, just the fact of the matter, like I I think it's unreasonable to be six months of training and then expect you to make a life and death decision that affects the lives of somebody else. That's a, that's a tall order as, yeah. a, as a police officer. Right. Yeah. And you know, the use of, are you familiar with the four science Institute and the stuff yep. they do? Okay. So I've been to several other classes. I like it. They did a study I thought was interesting and they basically pointed out that if an officer gets more reality-based training scenarios, they are less likely to be involved in a, uh, use of force incident, right? So they did a, a study where they had t- officers go through 10 scenarios and officers go through 100. And then they basically looked at the groups and at the end of it, they said, hey, this group that had 10 scenarios has a higher use of force rate, rate higher rate of use of force yeah. as opposed to the people that had 100. And I think that ties into our jujitsu world pretty strongly because the officer yeah. that spends more time on the mat spends more time doing the jujitsu when they get on the street. It seems like, I don't know, from my perspective and looking at the stats, it seems like the people that are better trained have a lower rate of use of force incidences. And yep. I think part of that's just because they, they they see it, they know how to react better. And like you said, they're educated and trained to respond better. So as a police chief, how do you make that a part of your culture to where you can make that a, a way we do business, right? Mm-hmm. How do we produce a better product for the people we're charged to serve and protect as police officers? You know, what's the, what's the end goal there? And so, I love the Marietta, Georgia, man. I thought that was amazing. So I really appreciate that. And then um, uh, I forget his name, but uh, the Sandman, I think he's on the Invictus. Oh, yeah, John. Yeah, yeah. I like watching his posts and what he's doing and then seeing what Chad's doing with his Code 4 concepts. I think that's, man, that's fabulous. I don't, I can't say much, I can't say enough good stuff about that, what what y'all have going on. I'm super excited about it. But it's also paving the way for people in my position to say, hey, Georgia's doing it. Why can't Arkansas do it? Exactly. Yeah. Here's a here's a thought. Like, do, do you? And, and I think it's something you guys can answer. Just something I'm thinking about sitting here talking with y'all, uh, listen, listening to uh, is, you know, do you run into pushback from this older generation in terms of like, I mean, obviously we see the value in jujitsu, but there's a weird dichotomy even for me and that. Um, yes, I, it makes common sense, uh, total sense to me that the more I know of hand, hands-on jujitsu tactics, strategies, if I'm competent in that area, you know, I'll maybe not resort, resort to, to my sidearm first in, in some instances where that might be taking place. But do you guys run into like people saying like, well, yeah, you know, you guys are obviously biased towards jujitsu, you know, like it's more complex because that's something I run into when I'm just raising basic awareness is, is not really an excuse. It's more like, well, you know, when you're going hand, you're never going to know, cause you're never going to go hands on with somebody. And, you know, 
you gotta, you have to resort to this because this, you don't know if they have a weapon and you're just biased because you train jujitsu. I've ran into a fair amount of that just in casual conversation. Like, what about, like, what are, where are you guys with that crowd? So, so I'll just, this is a statement I'll make on that is like, so I've got several evaluations when I was a patrol officer that I, that there's instances that we went to that I was able to de-escalate through communication skills as opposed to going hands-on. But I think part of that is, and Ari can uh, maybe speak more to this, is in our profession, there's people we work with that you're glad they show up on calls. And then there's people you work with that you really don't want them to be there because you know it's about to go go for the bad. And I think doing jujitsu, doing martial arts, be more confident in your ability to control or go hands-on with a suspect makes it okay for you to talk to somebody, right? A lot of times we get this attitude in our profession where you walk up and you kind of point to your badge and you go, I'm the police by God, you're going to do what I tell you to do. This is how it's going to be, right? When you approach it with that situation, that person is going to have a higher rate of use of force incidences than the guy that's willing to go out there, confident in his abilities, can do what he needs to do to, to, to perform his tasks. And if he goes hands-on, he's like, okay, I'm going to handle it. And I think a lot of that just boils down to the, the mat time helps because it gets you confident in what you can do so you're able to look at other avenues, right? And it kind of gets you like the we always say like check your ego at the door at the gym, right? I think a lot of police officers need to check their ego before they go to work a lot of times because that would make it a lot to me. That's that's something we run into in area. I don't know your thoughts or comments on that question. Yeah, the uh it, it's funny you bring up a point which is talking about when officers show up and then you know that they're trained or they have an ability. There's a there's a unspoken language that we have so if i was at a call and i saw a fellow police officer who had jujitsu who showed up there's a language unspoken language there i know what they're capable of i know that they know how the body moves i know they understand leverage uh and all these things and and honestly i would love i don't think this is i mean marietta did that stat where Officers who knew jujitsu were less likely to be involved in use of force incidents, uh, and they were also less likely to injure a suspect or being injured. I mean, these are all things that we know, but administrators have to actually see the hard numbers because yeah. they're number people, right? It's like, well, show us the science behind it. And uh, you do get this ego where people are like, well, you need to use your tool belt or that jujitsu stuff or that hands-on stuff is it's like, why would I even touch somebody or, or, or things like that? And it, it, it doesn't, their, their arguments aren't very good because we touch people all the time. You know, like I said, if we're arresting people, that's how we do it. Um, you can't put a taser on the ground and talk to the taser and say, can you please arrest this person, put them in handcuffs. It is a tool to get them into handcuffs. And how do you do it? You go hands-on and that's what you do. So you, you need these, right? Tools are fantastic, but uh, the hands is where it's at. And if you're going to be a responsible police officer, your use of force options have to include a super large section of hands-on stuff. So we have this, which is talking, conflict resolution, which is great. And most officers do it 95% of the time. And then everything in between there from compliant handcuffing to actually lethal force can also include jujitsu. But if you take that out of the equation, after talking, what is there? OC spray, baton, taser, firearm. So that doesn't make sense to me if you're missing this huge chunk in between. Yeah. And I think our, our decisions response, you know, like one thing that, that we talk about a lot of times is that, you know, when the adrenaline hits, your ability to make good quality decisions kind of goes down the tube. Yeah. So the more, yeah. 
so the more the more you do jujitsu, the more you do training or you run or you're physically fit, you're used to that higher heart rate. So you can make some better decisions when you're under stress, especially, you know, that's, that's been shown statistically throughout the lots of studies, but you know, it's like you're saying, you know, so we, we, so I'm, I'm a DT instructor. I'm sure you do the same thing. It's, it's fun. It's fun to teach people how to arrest people. Right. But you know, when we teach this idea of uh, doing, we also responsible for use of force reviews. So we review all use of forces that come through. And I don't, I, I'd like to see a study on the, on the trend of the, uh, over-reliance of the taser, right? I think the new people coming up, they're more apt to tase you. If you say, I'm not going to jail. Okay, yeah. taser, right? Tase, tase, tase. Good, run the lightning. Woo, that was easy. Didn't have to touch him and I got to put him on there. But I think you're right on the on the hand, on, on, the, on the hand control and people not having confident ability to do that. But I think as a as as a as an institution or as a as an organization, you know, you've got to have officers out there that are confident in their ability to do what they need to do. And the biggest problem we have, I think, as an institution for a lot of us is just our resources, right? Like you're a seven-year officer, right, Eric? Is there any specialized yep. units you go to or anything you do? Uh, I'm moving, I'm actually coming off patrol. I've been on patrol for a long time. So I'm coming off patrol and moving to our domestic violence unit. So okay. that's gonna happen in the, in the summer. But I mean, we have different units just like every uh, other department, yeah. You ever thought about training? Uh, like DT? Uh, no, training. I, I, I think when we talk about training, I think uh, everything ties in, like how we do our jujitsu, how you do your firearms, how you do your arrest procedures, how you do your conflict resolution, how you do all your de-escalation. I think it's a total picture that you have to teach from a training aspect. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, I agree with you. And um, I mean, I'm doing, uh, I'm an FTO as well. So uh, again, we just talked about it. It starts at that level with the recruits and trying to indoctrinate them and, and send the thing, uh, you know, that message. And, and here's the thing we're talking right now. So everyone who's listening to your podcast is probably a jujitsu person or uh, they like jujitsu or something like that. The people who don't like jujitsu, don't know anything about it or not cops are just kind of going, well, I don't know what they're talking about. It doesn't apply to me. But then let's just say, hey, what happens if there's a police officer listening to this podcast that doesn't jiu-jitsu, do jujitsu, and they're listening to these three guys sitting around a table harping on about it, and they're rolling their eyes and they go, oh, God, I just, I'm tired of hearing this bullshit because, you know, I've never needed it. Like, what, what is wrong with these guys? Like, come on, they're, the old way is still the way. And um, I would say that this is not the way. So if we're going to take a Mandalorian thing, <laughs> this is not the way. You, you, we have to change. Well, and so just so you know, on our end, what we're doing in Arkansas or what we have going on ours is we're actually working with the local police academy for the state, and we're in, we're integrating that degree program I talked to you about. And so we're hoping our institution is the first institution in the state to do that model. Now, awesome. granted, it's going to be a five-year, so we'll have like two years before our first, if you want to call them products, or people hit the market, right? But hopefully in about five years, that'll be permeated throughout the state, and we're hoping, I hope it creates a new standard. Does that make yeah. sense? And so if you got a guy that has two and a half years of training under his belt and he goes to a department, he's like, hey, where, when do we train? And you start asking questions like that, that's going to change the organization culture of that department and maybe seek out other opportunities to do that. And then y'all's Invictus site with the certified gyms, I think is great because it gives an opportunity to say, hey, if you want to train, here's some places to go. Mm -hmm. And it opens up an avenue as well after the academy. So I'm hoping it's a good model and I hope it works out well, but we're I think you catch them on the front end. I think the other issue we face as police, just kind of throwing it out there, 
is that we take people that have been patrol officers for 10 years and go, hey, you're going to be the police chief. Okay, here's your budget of $7 million. Have fun. And then you're yeah. like, I've never done human resources in my life. All of a sudden you're doing budget, human resources, and all that. I think we, our administration of these departments need better training. And I'm going to take a punch in the face over this probably. But at the end of the day, the people that sit at the top, we're not adequately trained to do our job because we've basically been running the streets for a couple of years. And next thing you know, you're like, hey, I'm a police chief. What's a budget? Right? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And the one thing I like hearing from you and seeing other chiefs that talk about this is I think the best run departments are police chiefs that have a connection with their officers. There's a division that happens between administration and patrol members or, or, or cops that um, cre creates a distance between the two. So when you know your officers' names, when you train with them, when, you, when you're just a regular person, because we're all people in the end that... Uh, I think that helps morale and your, your officers want to train and they want to listen to the chief because they know the chief has their back. When a chief has their members backs, the feel in the department is way different than if that's not the case. And we know this. Yeah, also, I'd add to that, you know, I've, I've been through several police chiefs in my time. Mm -hmm. so I started back in 03 as a cop and started martial arts in 96 or serious martial arts, you want to say 96. I didn't discover jujitsu until 2015 when Brian rolled me up like a wet sock. Yeah. Anyway, different. It's a different story for another time. Uh, <laughs> by the end of the day, um, you know, we talk about chiefs. You know, the best chiefs I've ever served under have been like former SWAT operators or people that are um, high-level tacticians or tactical operators in the department, right? because I've always had a better relationship with them. And it seems like they've always understood better the patrol function than a chief that just kind of came up through the ranks patrol, went over here, went here, and just kind of shot to the top super quick. It seems like they lost that feel for what it is to be. I agree with you. They lost that feel of what it is to be an officer. And so that's been my experience, just personal experience. I don't have any data to back that up, but. Yeah. You bring up a good point, and I want Brian to, to talk about this. So you said that in 2015, you started doing jiu-jitsu, and you had a prior martial art experience. So, uh, Josh, you and I have a similar background, um, both Aikido practitioners. So mm -hmm. I had a very similar experience. You know, I was already a black belt uh, when I discovered jiu-jitsu for the first time, and it, it was the same thing. I'm like why isn't this working, <laughs> you know, but I already knew that. And I'm, this is not, this is not a trash talking Aikido because there's too many jujitsu guys that do it. And I think it's uh, undeserved. Uh, and I will state on record now that I've used Aikido techniques many, many times in my policing career that have worked wonderfully well. And the reason they work wonderfully well is because understand joint manipulation and movement and stuff like that. Steven Seagal, unfortunately, has um, placed uh, a, uh, I'm trying to be, I don't have to be politically correct, but he, he, he's fucked up Aikido in many ways because of just how odd he is. But he also brought it to the forefront. I mean, that's how I discovered it in, in 87 when Above the Law came out. And I'm like, I have to do this martial art because it was awesome. But I use it, I integrate it into my Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. My Aikido led me to Japanese Jiu-Jitsu, which I use all the time, uh, also integrate into my BJJ. And uh, I think that they are a wonderful complement to one another. So I'm not saying that Aikido is the end-all be-all. I'm also saying that Jiu-Jitsu is not the end-all be-all. 
So you have to make sure that you know all your ranges. You have to understand manipulation. Um, the one thing that we're trying to do, and you'll see like Jay Wadsworth and Chad Lyman also doing this, is they are looking at jujitsu from a police combative perspective. They're integrating jujitsu with weapon retention, with wrestling, judo, and all these things. And that's how it should actually be done. I mean, the original concept of jujitsu was all of these things, but unfortunately, BJJ kind of pushed it in this thing. It's like, well, BJJ is all groundwork. And I'm like, no, it isn't. So my particular lineage uh, is uh, Keith Owen, Pedro Sauer, Elio Gracie. So there's a huge self-defense aspect to it. And Pedro Sauer always says, you know, there's black belts in Brazil that don't know any self-defense. And uh, I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, they, they don't know any of the self-defense aspects of the art. It's, it's all sport jiu-jitsu. And there's nothing wrong with sport jiu-jitsu. It's amazing, but very interesting. So I have a keto background and a judo background in jiu-jitsu and we did some weapon stuff, but the self-defense aspect of it. So I didn't just go to 2015. So I was an officer since 2003. So I got to see judo work on the street and I had a ground game for judo, but I never had any, I'm one of those guys. You never had any issues on the street when you went to arrest somebody. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like, Hey, everything worked out great. Slam them down really hard, put them in handcuffs quick, throw them back in the car and go get a cup of coffee. Right. Uh, and Aikido was great because Aikido does work on the street. I've used it several times on people and it, it's been a great tool in, in the tool belt, but jujitsu just opened my eyes up to a lot of different stuff. And it's been a great compliment to what we do because, you know, yeah. I'm just going to say like at Brian's school, when we're up there working at Forza, you know, it's not just jujitsu, it's wrestling, it's judo, it's Muay Thai, it's kickboxing, it's all these arts thrown in together. And you can, you can get such a broad range of arts, right? It's not just jujitsu. And then when you add the self-defense aspect of it, like the, Hicks and Gracie, the self-defense university, that type of stuff. And you kind of go down that road. Um, and then we do a lot of knife stuff like Craig Douglas and all that stuff. We pursue a lot of those things. Awesome. And, uh, the DT program we, 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 uh, we use is a SSGT, which is a guy named Johnny Lee Smith. Who's like a fifth degree under Machado. Uh, he was the, one of the first uh, brown belts under uh, Hickson back in the day, long time ago. And mm-hmm. then his student, Daniel Bryan, they run the SSGT program. So it's a jiu-jitsu based martial arts deal too and that's what we teach for dt and i appreciate how he teaches it because it works real well but it's like i think it's, it, there's a complete picture there right it's great to have all your backgrounds but being able to tie all your stuff together i think is critical especially as an officer you know tying all your uh tying all your stuff together from your dt to your firearms to your ability to communicate having that complete package and understanding what's going on i think is is what we need more of out there. So I want to pose a question to both of you. So uh, this is a book question. So Brian, I'm going to ask you, what was the first influential martial art book that you picked up that you can remember? Oh, it would have definitely been an Eddie Bravo book. Yeah. Because he was, I just felt like at the time, his books were everywhere. I mean, this yeah. would have been in the same era of time that you were putting stuff on submissions one-on-one. So like, that was the number one video resource on, on YouTube. And then it had to have been uh, Mastering Jiu-Jitsu by Eddie Bravo. And then yeah. Kodakon Judo pretty early on. Marcel Garcia's X-Guard pretty early on. I did an X-Guard seminar as a white belt in like 2007. Yeah. You know, but it was, you know, I got Eddie's books real early. Ah, dude, I mean, mine are over here on the shelf. And really, honestly, man, I might have heard about Eddie Bravo stuff on your videos. Like, that's probably 
the order of operations, honestly. Yeah. Uh, great books. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they really are. And I felt like he, uh, he was just, um, oh, they were different. They were unique. Yeah. Not to take anything away. I have a whole bookshelf full of martial arts books over here, but I mean, and that's a big part too. And I think like back on that biases thing that we're, uh, sort of path we're on earlier is like, you know, everybody does have their biases, but I mean, all of us, same thing. I'm working with an Aikido guy tomorrow that was the national champion of the Philippines in judo. And he's got this big Aikido background and does Wing Chun. I have two Wing Chun dummies. And like, we all are talking about all these different arts that we study and we do have an open mind. I think the bias is um, really more so uh, just about doing what works. Like, I, you know, we used to like have a, a dedicated judo class now we just do like John Donaher. We're just doing the judo in the jiu-jitsu class, really? you know, Ochigari. We did it last night, right? Taught it just like, but instead of just being a jiu-jitsu academy that does not do takedowns, we just yes. do the take. It's just a part of the class, you know, right. like uh, in, I mean, that, whether that's Japanese jiu-jitsu that I've trained with, with some of my instructors who like one of my coaches, my jiu-jitsu coach has a big background in Japanese jiu-jitsu. Josh and I have trained with him and it's like, and he trains SWAT and in other groups in, in our state capital. So, but I mean, it's, you know, I do have a really open mind. I want to study what works. That's why I have books on the shelf, you know, and I've always tried to have an open mind about that because, you know, I've found over the years that like, even though it, people might talk shit about something, it might also work. And we're talking to you, Joe Rogan, if you listen to this. <laughs> Cause he, he's come down real hard on Akita, Right. And I, he's also come down hard on chiropractic care and all sorts of stuff. It's his podcast to say what he wants, but I, I mean, literally like, why would you, I mean, Akita, uh, Hickson has a black belt in Akito and judo. Mm -hmm. Why? Maybe that should tell us something like, Oh, Ari does Japanese jujitsu. And he also does Brazilian jujitsu. And he's also law enforcement. I bet he does that for a reason. I'm sure he's not just wasting time, you know? And, um, I, I don't know. I feel like that's some, some perceptions that are out there. It does kind of bug me. Cause I've always really, I mean, I'm, I'm trying, I'm training Taekwondo with one of my, with my same jujitsu case, Taekwondo background his whole life. And I'm like, well, I'll just, I'll just learn the patterns and yeah. Give me something to do. You know, I'm interested. It will make my kicks better. I hear let's, let's see what's up. Right. So, but, you know, I, I wish there's more of this, uh, that attitude uh, in departments as well. And, and two, that this is to hit on something from Joe Rogan's podcast with Jocko, uh, one of the last times he was on. You know, he talked about a culture in which law enforcement train essentially on the job, maybe an hour a day or whatever, like we would all three do. We would all go train jiu-jitsu every day you know like that's part of life we would seek the martial arts path whether it was jiu-jitsu or not right we would go train uh you know here's something I've, I've thought about like uh I was I was joking around about going hands-on with somebody like my my cousin needed to evict somebody from one of his properties I was like yeah we shouldn't do that because we might get injured you know but I mean, that's something I think about too, or have been thinking about recently. It's not, not something I always took into consideration, but like just to go from like riding around in your police car to yes. like a, an adrenalized situation, going hands-on with somebody who is resisting, maybe say they sucker punch you, whatever. Uh, 
and you know, getting like, I mean, I feel like you almost have to be doing it daily, something exercising to, to keep your body in a state like where you can do that and not like, I mean, I've blown my back out sneezing before, you know, like, yeah. you know, so, but, and it's like, maybe that's from doing jujitsu. Here we are with our biases again, but it, it's an interesting, that's something I'm like, man, you know, it, it is a liability. There are liabilities there for departments. I get that, but it's like, it's also a liability to have them not working on their bodies and then ask them to go hands-on and then they do take early retirement or disability or whatever on down the line. Like, you guys have any thoughts on that? Well, there's more risk of not doing than doing. And I would agree with you. And the benefits outweigh the risks yeah, for, for training, uh, whatever your training is. So, um, uh, you know, I think it's it, pretty simple there. Yeah. And the thing about our job that's interesting is like, if you're a competitor for jujitsu, you got like a 10 week period where you're prepping, right? If you're a cop, you know, you're going to fight next Tuesday at three o'clock on that call. And yeah, we'll be ready for it. You know what I'm saying? But that yep. constant, constant state of readiness, because you go from sitting in a car, stepping out of a car on a traffic stop, a dude all of a sudden jumps out of the car. Hey, dude, can you wait a second? I got to stretch before we get mm-hmm. into this. And that's not the reality of the situation. And, you know, it's, 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 it's a different um, attitude I think you have, to, you have to adopt in our profession as far as your mental state of readiness, preparedness, and being kind of switched on when you're on duty, right? Which there's a whole, that's, that's a whole other discussion, I think. But there's just a yeah, lot of I mean, that's a great point. And uh, so Josh, what is, uh, I just want to go back because I'm curious, what was your first book? What's your, what's your go-to book? So, okay. So there's several, but I guess if I'm going to start like at the early, early times. So I did a, uh, and when I was in college, I started studying the martial arts more heavily. And so uh, a book that I really enjoyed was the three Budo masters. You ever read that one? It's like about Funakoshi, Yoshiba, and uh-huh. Hiro Kano. And uh-huh. basically, talked about their life and there's like a biography of the three most influential martial arts masters of the time and their different arts right this is before the UFC came out obviously but it was a good book for me and then from there uh, the Kodokan Judo book that's that's the one I, I went to I go to for studying uh in the martial arts and then Aikido there were several books they gave me but right now um there really wasn't one that was because there really wasn't a lot of books out there that were like oh this is how you do this throw in Aikido it was all more philosophical not very technique driven but yeah there's some books that I, 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 used, I used to go to. Now, when I became a jujitsu guy, Brian gave me Galvo's book on how to train. And I read that and I still have it and read it on a regular basis. And then he gives me uh, all these other books he recommends and I follow, follow suit with them. And it's just been, I don't, I don't know how to really explain it. The, my early martial arts career was more philosophical, if that makes sense. Because you're doing yep. keto, it's all spiritual. And the guys that were hanging out with wanted you to sing Kumbaya and chant in circles and stuff and then do a keto. <laughs> Right? Yeah. So it's, I really appreciate Brian, Jim. <laughs> yeah. Here's, here's, here's one too. I would say, Ari, like, you know, I was building the gym while going to college, getting a master's degree, researching martial arts history. So, like, a lot of the books I was doing on martial arts too during that time, um, like, through all my belts were like about the history and about writing my thesis. But, uh, at that time, because I was working at the history department and my gym was not, it didn't have 300 members. It wasn't 8,000 square feet. At mm-hmm. one point I split room at this karate place. Right. 
you know, so, but um, the, yeah, there's a lot of resources I couldn't afford until like the last few years, like the Gracie master text. I remember there were certain resources I tell my students all the time. I'm like, I could never afford this until five years ago, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I mean, I've got Josh a copy of that for Christmas. Just it's amazing. Because I was like, he yeah. has to have it. I had to have it. I had to have yeah. Greg Nelson's clinch all five parts, you know, <laughs> But uh, it is, you know, it's and and then we live in this era where, like BJJ fanatics, and I mean, like, well, let's like, whereas I got exposed to Keith Owen on your page, now he's got an instructional over here that I can have streamed to this app on my phone, like, so it's it's interesting to chase down these books out of print books um, and stuff still, like things I haven't acquired, and then older DVD instructional series. Um, and then to this like new, like the stream into the app, like, and again, like to see the transformation from like that era when you got involved streaming on YouTube to now, like, who do you want to see? Like type in a black belt that you enjoy and see their whole game. Yeah. It's changed tremendously. I mean, it, it, it's crazy how it's all at her fingertips. So um, like, what is it? One of the books. So this is one of the books. Uh, one of the very first books that got me into the martial arts, and this was made in 1970. And this is like, so this is called Aikido and the Dynamic Spirit, right? Everyone has this book, right? And it's hilarious because when you look at it, it's got these like really kind of crappy pictures. But so Brian, to compare this book to uh, Eddie Bravo's amazing colored pictures like he really pushed it to the next level because most of the martial art books look like this these hand-drawn things and these were really quite good for the time but it also has kind of the uh, philosophy i really like reading text about martial arts it's not just about the pictures um you know and a lot of people just like oh just show me the pictures or just show me the video i don't want to know anything i just want to know the technique and for me because i have a philosophy background I love to, I want to know the philosophy of the martial arts and, and why things are the way they are, because I just find it interesting. Right. So, so I'm a student of the martial arts in the history like you. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, too, I talk, I talk about this with people a lot. Like you very rarely get people that are, that are both like, I mean, it's, there are only maybe, a hand I mean there I think six guys that were out there in the world when I was doing my thesis that were historians by trade mm -hmm. that were writing about martial arts you just don't get a lot of that right so it's so it, what I'm saying with that is it can be a fertile field for people like yourself or me as somebody who yeah I've obviously I'm going to have some biases because I'm a practitioner but I'm also a trained historian you know mm -hmm. But uh, that's something like that we really um, don't have a lot of people writing martial arts history that are historians. And it's something that's kind of always stood out to me uh, mm -hmm. is, and, and what encouraged me to kind of go down that path uh, because, uh, you know, there's not a lot of people doing it. And that's kind of the angle on writing your thesis and everything. Like, what are you contributing that is not out there? Uh, but it, I do feel like that that's an area where you get this, it's weird, you get, there are some great books, but you get these picture books and then you get like a book about about the history of this guy's style, mm -hmm. right? 
and it's a weird, uh, and I've found some incredible books over the years. I mean, honorable mention, I'll say one of the most influential books, period. And, and a first book that was given to me by my instructor when I kind of went out on my own was The Tao of J uh, JKD. Yep. Yeah, I mean, just iconic. Like that's, um, it's been like a go-to. I, I pick something up uh, all the time when I go to it. So, you know, but that's, um, I really too love just like looking at all these books we're talking about too, like in a context of like, they're a part of the history too. Like, and too, like who's even putting out books right now like these books we're talking about like is anybody still doing them you know and, and i think they should so um so keith owen he just put out his latest book uh, from the ground up which is his it's like yes. which is great um and i'm hoping i i hope my japanese jiu-jitsu instructor steve hisko he actually writes a book so there he is the uh he's carrying the torch of Japanese jiu-jitsu in Canada, like the Canadian jiu-jitsu journey from his dad and from their instructor, George Sylvain, uh, and who was a cop and created this jiu-jitsu program from, you know, in the 1940s and 1950s. It's, it's really interesting, but this stuff will be lost unless it's pen is put to paper because the problem is, is now many martial art practitioners are show me the technique. I want to kick ass. I don't care where it comes from. Tradition sucks. Um, and this is, you know, just, it, it's all about the moves and how I can get my taps. I disagree with that because there's a wonderful thing you learn in reading about the history and understanding the art and talking to these old timers. Uh, it's, it's amazing. Like just listen to stories. It's so captivating. You talk to a guy like Pedro Sauer or Hicks and Gracie, no one is saying anything. They, you're letting them talk and you're listening to these stories that are absolutely incredible. So, but you know, to your point, just to kind of highlight both of y'all real quick, I think you know it helps you understand art better if you understand the people that made it. So, like in Aikido is a good example. So, the style of Aikido that we did was called Tamiki Ru, who was one of the students of Yoshiba, developed this Tamiki Ru, and his system was principle based. So, if you get in that, that's great. But if you understand who he was, he was uh, famous for breaking necks in Japan. Uh -huh. He loved the Kamate to the chin. So, when you, when you study his style of Aikido, it's all about getting that hand in the face. Everything you do ends up with the hand in the face and the throws are pretty, but he's like, I'm going to try to break your neck. So if you understand that from the privilege of where he comes from, his history and what he did, and he had a fundamental argument with Yeshiva, which was kind of interesting over the teaching style of Aikido. So how you learn what you do and how you uh, give information. His idea was I could teach you a few things and then you learn the whole system. And Yeshiva was more, no, we got to teach you everything. This something's totally separate. So you got to know the whole thing to get proficient at it. So it's kind of interesting when you get that philosophical historical thing to think of the martial artist. If you don't understand the art you're practicing, the techniques are great. You lose a lot on the, on the end of when you're trying to especially regurgitate information to people to make them better. Yeah. Know? And Josh, was he uh, was he a pre-war Yeshiva student or post-war? Uh, Do you know? Uh, 19... Because Yeshiba's uh, Aikido changed after the war, right? So you've got all his pre-war students who were quite tough. And then the post-war stuff where you got a little bit more like <laughs> zenny. Um, and is your style is your style kind of closer to Yoshinkan than Aikikai or? So he, I'm trying to think, he, he was in the 40s is when he started. And he came to, and when Shiba passed, it was him and his son had a, had an argument. He split off from his son after after Yeshiva passed. So I would say he's probably post war. I have to check that out. Okay. Just going on. 
Gotcha. With that. I can't answer your question. I apologize. That's okay. Yeah. I heard a fascinating, I read this um, the other day, um, but like about Kano taking, going and taking some of his white belts to Yeshiva's and like seeing Yeshiva's white belts work and like losing his mind, like this is the greatest representation of jujitsu ever guys. And, and like a couple of his white belts were like, what do you mean? Like what, they, what is this stuff we're doing? Right, and I th I kind of think about it this way, like when I teach survey level history, uh -huh. which is all I teach, unfortunately. <laughs> but it's like you know, I mean, we do this unit over Thomas Jefferson, the War eighteen twelve, and Andrew Jackson, but that was a whole class I took as an undergraduate, right? right. And if I was going to do a graduate project on it, it would be refined even further. Just like I think a lot of styles, you can take that away, like. You know, the sport rules, I think, have driven a lot of those stereotypes about, well, judo's a throwing art, BJJ's a ground art, mm. whatever. But, you know, I also feel like certain styles or even certain styles within styles, like you can gleam a lot of very specialized work from that. Like, okay, yeah, you know, we could talk about Thomas Jefferson in this way, or we could talk about him in this way you know, and, and go do a deep dive more versus like, okay, we're overviewing this in this amount of time or, you know, and then we're on to the next thing, but mm -hmm. where it's like an intense study. But um, anyway, that's just kind of like a metaphor, but um, <laughs> what, but, you know, I think that martial arts, I've just kind of viewed those in the same way. And I have always kind of looked at like, okay, well, we have, um, you know, we have Hickson, he's, He's belted in judo. He's belted in Aikido. He's obviously Elio Gracie's son. He's competed in tons of Sambo tournaments, MMA. It's like, obviously, obviously the man is, is well stu studied in the arts, like has all this reverence for Japan, you know, in the samurai culture. And I think that, I think that needs to be pushed more. I think that, uh, and I've been guilty of it too, you know, like, oh, well, you know, your style sucks because MMA is better and Taekwondo is stupid or karate or, or whatever. Like I've been somewhat guilty of that myself, but through just like studying and learning about history and learning about different styles and studying different styles, you can't not appreciate everything that's out there. And, you know, that's what I do like about some of, uh, some of the military guys that I've uh, interacted with over the years have got like a broad based, uh, like they're doing some Filipino martial arts or doing some grappling with some gi tops on, yeah. um, you know, and I don't know, you guys think there's anything that could be integrated process wise. Again, I know the military has its problems. I actually dealt with, with writing some of that with my thesis, but do you think there's anything that law enforcement could take from the way the military is, uh, or different militaries, uh, not just within the United States or, uh, or North America, but elsewhere? I mean, is there anything that could cross over? So it depends on the goal of the, of the department, right? So um, we're, so, so adult learning styles, okay? If this is okay to talk about, right? So there's a thing called androgyny, which is a way that adults learn. So the police use what's called a behaviorist model when it comes to education, which is basically the lecture student model. So we stand up front, I lecture, we do this type of stuff, right? So if you wanna, so police, when you do that, back in, it's a little histor history lesson, right? So the federal, ag federal agencies came around in the 1920s and 1930s. Before that, you had a guy named Robert Peel, who's considered the father of modern policing. 
Um, and his Pelian, and he has what's called his nine Pelian principles. In those principles, he has a statement he says, he says, the police is the public and the public is the police, right? So it's a pretty profound statement if you think through it and think of what that means. And then in the 20s and the 30s, when it came into law enforcement change with the federal agencies, prohibition, a lot of stuff came into effect. And it became this thing where now the police weren't the public. The police's job was to control the public. Mm -hmm. Okay. And they transferred more to paramilitary style of training. And people came back from the war, brought that over, that type of training. And they brought that into the law enforcement. And then um, then we had this idea of community policing. And uh, the in the 90s, this was the big push community policing. And they developed what they called the the six pillars of foundational policing, right? So the 21st century. Um, so, so they did this. And so there was a shift where you're trying to go from this law enforcement. So they're going from peeling principles back to law enforcement and then back to this idea of uh, community policing. Well, the thing about community policing, which is kind of a buzzword if you want to go that, it takes a, a high level of critical thinking to be a community policer, right? Really with law enforcement, I can tell you the laws. I want you to write tickets for everybody that runs a red light. You go do that, great. But if you want someone to enforce laws and be a police officer, you need someone that has a really high level of critical thinking and the ability to make decisions, right? They need to be able to be given a problem that's in the community, whether it's a drug problem, it's a kids don't cross the street correctly, you know, whatever you're trying to solve, partner with the community to fix that problem. That takes a, a high level of critical thinking. It's not just going out, stopping a car and writing, writing a citation. So one of the things we find, and there's lots of studies on this, I can provide them. Uh, one of the most uh, influential was a guy named... Uh, can't say his name is B-R-I-Z-E-R. He wrote this in 2003. It was a study on law enforcement training and what it does for you. And basically the conclusion was, which was pretty interesting, is that our current behaviorist model produces law enforcement officers that can perform tasks on the job, but don't have the necessary facilities to be a critical thinker. So if you change to what's called an androgical model or an androgyny model for law enforcement training, you can develop critical thinkers that can do that. And that's, that's the method we use now. And so basically it's a student-led learning process that's facilitated by an instructor. One of the reasons we don't see in our profession, though, is because of the resources it takes to run that. If I have an academy of 50 students going through, I need to triple my training staff to facilitate that model for, for instruction, right? And so getting back to your original question, um, as far as police's, policing is concerned, you know, if you're going to make a shift or make a change in our culture, you've got to change the way we train and how we present information and what we do. So if you want to go from integration of, I want my officers to do this, that's great. Behaviorist model has a place. Androgyny model has a place too as well, but you got to have both of them working hand in hand. And there's tons of studies out there for adult learning theory, right? They're, there's, they're just too busy trying to teach cops the same way we teach kindergartners, right? Yep. So you've got to change that and change the way we teach officers and train officers so they can develop the skills they need to do the job better. And so if you integrate some of that, some of that stuff in there, I mean, that's a great idea. It works out perfect. You just got to be able to have an instructor that understands adult learning because right now in our profession, I don't know how it is in Canada, but in Arkansas, if you're going to be an instructor, you go to a week training for 40 hours, you come out three years on the job, you can be a certified instructor. And as long as you take a class on it, you can teach it. I think that's probably one of the best um, explanations of learning styles and policing I've ever heard. I, I That's fantastic. And I'm totally going to crop that and, and put it on our Invictus thing later uh, because it is, it is true. And one of the things I also think that you kind of touched upon is that we are so used to parroting information. Teach me, I regurgitate, right? And we know that doesn't work. So conceptual learning is, is really important. Uh, and this isn't come back to the martial arts a little bit. 
when you produce a black belt, Brian, and automatically people say, well, if you're a black belt, you're a wonderful teacher. And we know that that's not the case. And you need to teach people how to teach. That is where it's at. Um, and so my goal in the martial arts is I want to try to be the best teacher I can be. I know I'm not going to be a world champion. I know I'm not going to win um, the, the big ones or anything like that. And it doesn't matter to me because that's not why I'm in it. So when I'm producing students, I also want to see them be able to teach concepts and become wonderful teachers. So there's a smooth transition. The worst thing is, is being in the room. And I've been to a lot of these seminars where very, very skilled practitioners unable to get their point across um, because they don't understand the concept of teaching or they understand teaching one type of person like themselves. They have to be able to change, right? It's like, well, I understand, um, you know, I'm not a big person or I'm not a world champion or I, I don't understand what you're talking about here. They can't adapt. You have to be able to adapt, so. Well, I think too, you know, this is something that I've, I've run into. It's like, you know, is a, is an instructor. There's this weird dichotomy between what the, you know, the things that I want to do that I do that are part of my game or that I want to be teaching. And then there's like what the students need. And I'm constantly going over things. I mean, every single day that it might not have anything to do with me. You know, I might not be anything that I'm super interested in covering or even use personally, but I see the value of that technique overall for, you know, a wider variety of people. And then I, I came at this way of thinking much later in, in training, but it's like, yeah, well, what about the person you run into that does know that? And I think a, a good analogy for like law enforcement would be like, what about that high school wrestler who is, is overpowering and can, can clinch you and belly to back you or something and just, you know, you never know what you're going to run into. So it's like train everything for that reason, for, for the person that you do encounter that they, you know, they have a technique that you avoided because it wasn't a part of your game or it wasn't a part of your coach's game, et cetera. You know, I think that's, um, I think that's something that's always kind of stuck out to me. It's like, I was trying to balance what my students need with everything else, you know? So I have a question just to kind of throw it out there. So first off, Brian is probably one of the best coaches I've ever seen. I just gonna throw that out there so you know that area. And I'm not trying to blow smoke up anything, but at the end of the day, like he coaches really well because he can tell me a set of information, but then he can tell in me as a purple belt, he tells it one way, but then he'll tell it different to a white belt, right? Mm -hmm. And it's the same information, but it translates well across both levels. And the white belt might be half my size, which happens all the time. You know, so anyways, he's transferring it to, to his body type and what he does, and he can make adjustments on the fly as far as what that means. Like if you're if you're this small, you're gonna do this. If you're this big, you'll do this. This is changes. It's mm -hmm. good. So, have you ever done any work like with the programming and neural pathways and what that looks like for police, what that looks like for judicial pra practitioners, and how do you do that without overloading people's uh, ability to retain information and program those neural pathways to make them? Uh, does that question make sense? Yeah, it does. And I think it comes down to understanding how uh, human nature and how people learn. So you have to be a student of knowing how people learn. Uh, and there are different learning styles. There's kinetic, there's, there's visual, there's audio. So we, we all know that. So identifying that immediately uh, is the mark of a good coach. And that adaptability is, is key. And like I said, some people have blinders on Josh and they can't see it and they can only teach one way. And they, they, 
they try to apply the purple belt concept to the white belt and the white belt's not going to understand it. So um, it's understanding those, those different learning uh, styles, I think is, is important. And that takes study. It takes experience and study. And a lot of people don't want to invest time into learning how to teach, which blows my mind. I tell you a great book that I really enjoy here, and it was because of Brian that I found it. Uh, the Art of Learning by Josh Boyskin was real good, but he has a book list he lists on his website, the Art of Learning, called The Talent Code, mm-hmm. about coaching and how you do how you develop really strong practitioners in a short amount of time for for your different thing and why certain areas. And the guy basically he took this, he studied what we call a hotbed. Like, why does Brazil produce the best soccer players? Why does Russia produce the best tennis players? Right. So if you got 20 national champions and six are coming from this one city in Russia. Why is that? And so it was a pretty interesting book on that. But at the end of the day, you know, he talked a lot about, you know, it boils down to who your coach is. And it was talking about the person that coaches you, how he coaches you, deep practice, how you do it. And that transmission information was so critical. And then the other thing was a, it's a, it's a book called Building Shooters. It was really good, but it was a breakdown of neural pathways. And I think when we talk about it for law enforcement, you know, we talk about this idea that, you know, there's, there's five major pathways we have to program, okay? The problem with our profession is we spend all time for programming this mechanical pathway. Like, this is a firearm. This is how you reload it. And so we do this the whole time, but we forget to program the pathway like, okay, when do I pull the trigger? There's a paper target. When do I make a decision to pull the trigger? And how do you program that pathway? And uh-huh. people have a really not to retain information. And so in jujitsu, you know, just watching Brian coaching what he does, he programs his neural pathways real well because – he gives people the opportunity to do it and then drill the hell out of it and get better. So I do enjoy that as far mm-hmm. as art's concerned. I have no idea where I was going with that. I think I'm just <laughs> <laughs> trying to sound intelligent with you guys that are like doctors and what you do. And I'm a lawyer. Yeah. We're stumbling through it like everyone else. Yeah. And, and this is, this is great conversation though. And I mean, yeah. Are you familiar with Josh Waiskin Ari? I'm not, no. He is a, he's a Marcel. I didn't find this out until much later. He's a Marcel Garcia black belt. He's the guy who designed MG in action. He's co-owner of Marcelo's gym. Oh, that's him. Yes. Okay. The chess world champion from a little boy, Bobby Fisher, the searching for Bobby Fisher, finding Bobby Fisher. Yeah. Like, so, uh, but it's a fantastic read. I listened to it twice uh, in the last year on Audible, and he does um, several of the books on his list. I've also listened to, uh, and they're just they're great. Uh, so, but he for anybody listening, I, that is uh, somebody I tell people about a lot. Like, what a fascinating guy! And he was into uh, Tai Chi, and yeah. like at the highest level before he got into Jiu-Jitsu. Yeah, yeah, that's it's crazy. One of the things I actually wanted to say um, was talking, because obviously COVID has affected all Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu gyms and training. And a lot of people have not trained in a year. Um, my training has, fall, has fallen off considerably and I'm finally getting back to it. And I'm admitting that. Like a lot of people don't want to admit it. It's like, no, no, no. They've been training hard or they're doing underground. I wish I was doing underground training, right? Um, I built a gym on my house now. Like I literally have a dojo in my house. So um, cause I closed my Academy and I, I need to train. So how, how was I keeping up with training and it's visualization. And so they talk about this with professional athletes, like vis- visualization is super important because the body body doesn't know, right. You can trick the mind is basically tricking the body that you're going through these, these motions. And that's why professional athletes visualize winning, scoring the goal. They, 
I, you know, coming down the ice and scoring the goal like a thousand times. And then when it happens, it's just, it's natural. So that's how I have been trying to keep in the game. I've been visualizing jujitsu. I think about use of force all the time. I think about getting out of my car and what's going to happen and scenario-based stuff. I'm constantly going through that, those motions. So when it happens, hopefully I'm prepared. I know my body is going to be <laughs> lagging a little bit because it's, it's not in jujitsu shape anymore, but that was one way that I kept on top of it. Yeah. I mean, visualization is, is so important when I was competing a lot, it was, it was something I focused on. And it's something you hear some of the greatest minds out there talk about whether they're athletes or coaches or just kind of, I guess your motivational speaker types, uh, you know, but that is, I mean, visualization. I, and I think that that goes into things beyond just jujitsu. Like mm -hmm. I, I'm past further past some things that I visualize, but everything that I have going on started as, is an idea, right? It started as a vision and it just grew, grew from there. Like whether that's a podcast or and, and granted again, in uncharted territories, uh, in, uh, in a lot of areas, right? Like, Oh, I didn't, didn't visualize this turning into that. So what comes next? You know, I mean, but uh, visualization, I, I noticed that like, what's fascinating to me is sometimes people will take a few weeks off for an injury. Yep. And then when they come back, they're, they're on fire. Like sometimes it, you suck, right? Sometimes nothing goes right and you, you hurt yourself again, right? Yep. Like, oh, my shoulder's better, but my, my elbow, right? <clears throat> but it, it is weird how like sometimes people take three, four weeks off. I've been that guy myself. And you come in and you are on fire, you mm -hmm. know, like your, your movements are on. And I too noticed that like it's the, the mistakes I fix are the ones that I thought about when I was not here, when I was not at the gym, when I was at home. And I encourage my students to do that all the time. I'm like, the problem you had today, like you got to think about it before you come back, whatever it is. Like, that's part of it. Like, you got to go do this mental work outside of here. Like, you're not just standing in front of the bag and I'll fix it next time I'm in practice and when I'm standing in front of the bag. Like, I, you know, no, it's going to take more mental work than that, right? It's going to take you visualizing like, okay, if I do this, I could get knocked out, right? Like, I don't need to do that. Like, let's think through, like, what's what I need to do instead? And I, I try to encourage that. I mean, and I think that that's like a part of um, a part of the process and a part of visualization is getting people doing that outside of their normal training regimen. Like the, the mental, the, I, I've always had saying the mental rep counts. Yes. Right? Like it does. That's exactly what you're saying. Do, you, do the work. You got to do the work. So what I find interesting. So y'all both black belts in jujitsu, right? So like when Brian watches a video, I know he can watch the guy do the technique and go, "Okay, that's cool. Let's train." Then uh, some of us have to watch it like thirty times and go, "I didn't see what Brian saw, <laughs> right? I didn't see what Ari saw when he did it, right?" Because y'all got the mental reps. But also when y'all are doing your mental reps, you know. It's, I think it's different than if someone that's a white belt is doing it because you've had so many people grapple with you so many times you've been in those situations. You can visualize different body types, visualize different fields and work through that problem on different areas. And it's such a higher level than a lot of a lot of us uh, people have been doing it as long is, but that visualization has been, for me, has been has been cool, especially in law enforcement. Like visualize, if I go to a convenience store and a guy's robbing him with a gun, this is what I'm going to do, right? This is what's going to yeah. happen, but... Y'all's visualization skills are probably a little higher than I would say a normal person is, it seems. 
You know, it's really funny and coaches always run into this when you, you get to a level and we all do it. We all make mistakes when we coach uh, and it's your ability to cover up the mistake to make sure that no one noticed that you made the mistake. But when you're a teacher and you see another teacher make a mistake and they cover it up, you're like, oh, they, they totally fucked that up and that's wrong, but they recovered. So you actually appreciate the cover up that <laughs> they moved on to the next thing. But the, but we, we know, right. But the white belts, the white belts are going, oh, wow, blowing my mind. And, and sometimes we're in the middle of a technique and you're doing something and you're kind of going with the flow and you're like, oh, this is not working. And I wonder if anyone's noticing, I'm going to change it right on the fly right now. That is so true. I, like I used to get hung up on, I'd be like, well, he showed it a different way that time. Like, wait, he didn't do that one thing. Like, it, uh, and then you like miss out on the whole technique to be in show because you're ripping it apart. Like, uh, uh, he's doing it a different way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah we, we just have to be humble and be honest about it like i i said this recently like i'm at a stage now that i'm admitting my mistakes i i screw up all the time i'm just trying to get better um you know time is ticking i've got more days behind me than i probably have in front of me now so i am trying to make the most out of my life and um and part of that is just admitting that uh we make mistakes so I think, um, oh, maybe, maybe Kurt Ossiander said this. I don't know who said it. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I, once I heard it, 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 was a, it was a little easier for me. But it's like, you know, you train with a bunch of, if, you, if you're training a bunch of snakes, you're going to get bitten. And you are training people to, you know, around you, you know, like over the years, just training with these guys it's like those are the guys that are going to catch me and submit me and that's okay right like it not making it a contest as an instructor but it's like because we now i said this on facebook the other day it's like we have more black belts in my academy than there were in the state i live in when i started training you know and it's like those people are incredible practitioners and you know you they they push me to new levels just like i mean me being the coach or whatever I'm bringing in new stuff, but it's like, man, all the time I am like, Hey, show me how you did that. Like, it's, it's super cool to be able to hit that everybody in the gym, having like a high level that's around me too. Like so many individuals, my wife's even a white belt now. So yeah, it's awesome. The job of a coach is to teach your students how to defeat you. That is the job of a coach. And if you are keeping information from them, then you're doing a disservice, right? You want your students to beat you. I mean, that's how it should be. And they think the Aikido's stupid. So it's easy to keep it from them. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) They don't even want to know it. We're the judo really. So, but we force some of it on them for sure. (laughs) For sure. Okay. That's awesome. Well, man, Ari, it's, it's been great catching up, man. Um, Anything else you want to want to get into before we wrap up? Uh, no, I just, uh, hopefully cops are listening to this. will jump over and find us on uh, Instagram. So here's my plug, right? So, uh, they can find us at Invictus uh, Leo, uh, official, uh, or InvictusLeo.com, which is our website. So hopefully more people join. We have uh, a private Facebook group too, which has 1700 members now, and it's all discussion about jujitsu and policing and stuff like that. So it's pretty cool. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll keep pushing forward. So, uh, I appreciate, I honestly really appreciate when people take the time to listen to me talk about this stuff because it needs to be out there and I'm not going to stop until I'm dead. And 
uh, mark my words, I'm going to say it on your podcast, that in the next couple of years, you're going to see a fundamental shift amongst policing and jujitsu and use of force uh, in the country uh, because there's way more people doing it. Awesome. I'm here for it, man. Uh, and always a pleasure, Ari. Um, again, thanks for taking the time. It's, it's just, it's awesome to get to sit down and talk with you about martial arts, about stuff we're all passionate about. So uh, hopefully this won't be the last time. Well, thanks my friend. All right, bro. Have a great one. Yeah. Okay.